0: Dara here. Yeah, I'm back off the menu. We're kicking it here. We have a jam-packed show today. First off, we got Pulitzer Prize finalist Mara Vistendahl, my new favorite person in the great state of Minnesota. Something of a genius. She's also a mom who lives in St. Louis Park. She has this new thriller of a nonfiction book about espionage in the cornfields. I am doing an event with her Tuesday night at Majors and Quinn and I just I'm just crazy about this book. It's a page turner. It's got spies in the corn, super into that. But it's it raises a whole bunch of extremely interesting questions, one of which is when you think about corn, I feel like I think about it as like it's sweet corn season. It's corn on the cob. I'm going to get the butter out, but Corn is is way more than than food at this point. And Mara Fistendahl, what what is corn in the year twenty nineteen or twenty twenty?
1: Well, corn is the source of much much of the you know much of the fuel that we use, much of the food that we eat. Right, we need it in the form of animal feed to the uh, to go into meat, and um, you know some, something like a a land the size of. The state of California is covered with corn in the United States. So there's just so much corn in our diet at this point and in the in the global diet um, that it has become a massive commodity.
0: And I kinda I didn't realize this until I read your book, is that, you know, we're just we're just used to it. You drive down the road, there's a cornfield, but it is actually a site of complex proprietary technology. That's right.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually used to be a reporter in China. I was working for the journal Science. And one day I read this story in the New York Times while I was living in Shanghai about a man named Robert Moe who was found in a cornfield in Iowa. And he had um, – it was a Monsanto cornfield – the company protected the corn that was growing there as trade secrets. And, you know, it was like it's so secretive that they didn't even tell the farmer who grows the corn um, what kind of seed he's planting every year. And, you know, it would arrive in these unmarked bags. And so Robert Moe's found in this field and that sets off this immense FBI investigation spanning two years Um, involving car chases and surveillance planes and warrants that are reserved for national security threats, usually.
0: It's just such a crazy story. I find it's it's very... It's very much page-turner. I'm going to ask you if there's been any movie interest in this. Uh, the book is called The Scientist and the Spy, True Story of China, the FBI, and Industrial Espionage. But one of the things I find most charming is just the idea that, I mean, we all drive down the road through cornfields, and the idea that, you know, you if you have important proprietary Silicon Valley uh, information is in a vault or it's locked in a laboratory, but the corn still... Even if it's the most important corn, it still needs the sun and the rain and so on and so forth. And it's, we could just be like in the most secret thing in the world uh, and never know. So companies like Monsanto,
1: which is now owned by Bayer, and um, DuPont Pioneer, which is another company that came up in the book, um, they devote a lot of effort to protecting their trade secrets and um, the corn that was growing in, the, in this field in Iowa was inbred um, seed that the company was going to use to make the next generation of corn that it would sell to farmers. Um, now, Robert Mo worked for a company in Beijing. He, um, he was a Chinese scientist who had moved to the United States in the 1990s to make his career here. Um his dreams didn't materialize when he failed to get tenure as a scientist. And so he used nepotism to get a job um, at this Beijing seed company. Um, they wanted to make uh, genetic, next generation genetically modified corn seed. And instead of investing a lot of money in the research and you know years of work that it would take to get that, they saw this shortcut in just like literally digging it up from the field in Iowa and Illinois. And it at at one point even trying to smuggle it back to China in microwave popcorn popcorn bags.
0: Ah, I love that. It is so crazy. I mean it's so smart too. It's like it would be that's a good place to hide corn.
1: Yeah, it's smart unless the FBI is on your tail and like watching every move. <laughs> I love so. it.
0: Yeah, the whole thing. I don't want. I don't know how much to tell people about it because I feel like they should just read it. I don't want to give things away. It's called The Scientist and the Spy. It's by Mara Fistendahl. And so I want people to know who you are because I feel like. You became this Pulitzer Prize finalist, very important nonfiction writer. Kind of when you were based out of the cities, but then you came back here to raise your kids, who are lovely little perfect people, of course. And but totally people perfect. maybe don't know. So yes. let's let's give people an overview. You are a hometown hero. You're a hometown girl.
1: Yes, um, I'm from Northfield originally. Uh, my grandparents lived in Iowa, so you know, spent a lot of time in Iowa as a kid. And you know, Northfield's surrounded by cornfields, so you know, had my share of like corn mazes and corn palaces and so I forth. I love a corn maze. Um, I went to hop and late, later moved to the cities with my mom, went to Hopkins High School. Um,
0: then and your mom, to- a lot of moms in Hopkins don't speak Chinese, but your mom <laughs> did, right? Because uh, your grandpa was a missionary.
1: My grandfather uh, had been a Lutheran missionary to Taiwan and Singapore. Uh, my mom does speak some Chinese. Um, she studied it at Carleton. And um, she, uh, when we moved to the cities, she moved in with a Chinese friend who had a, a son around the ages of me and my brother. And they kind of co-parented us and raised us together. Um, so I heard it growing up, which was helpful. I didn't learn to speak it until um, I was in high school. That's when I first started studying it,
0: and then you kept
1: going with it, right? Yeah, well, it's it, like Chinese is a lifelong pursuit. <laughs> I don't feel, you know, I feel like I'm still studying it. Um, you know, My kids are in um, Chinese immersion school now, and I'm now like relearning the language through them.
0: Oh, and so then you, so you went to. You know, you went to college, you went to grad school, you did all the things, and you went, you actually went, and moved to China, and you were an on-the-ground China reporter. A lot of people probably know, uh, you know, your your first more famous book, uh, it was about, you know, kind of gender selection, brutal gender selection in uh, Asia, unnatural selection, choosing boys over girls, and the consequences of a world full of men. Uh, and so that's where you were based when you were writing that. That's right. Yeah, I was,
1: you know, I started, I moved to China basically after I finished journalism school to freelance. Um, think, I mean, I had an editor who said, oh, if you speak Chinese, just go and you know, see what you can do there. And it, after a few years there, um, got this idea to write a book and I was lucky enough to be given the chance to do it with a series publisher. And um, that was and that was a different book. It was a it was a kind of idea book where I went to, um, I think seven or eight countries, uh, interviewed people, interviewed like women who'd had abortions um, because the baby was a girl. Um, talked to um, doctors. I talked to sex workers. I talked to you know men who couldn't find wives because of this shortage of females and And it tried to you know turn that all into still a really compelling narrative that asked a lot of
0: questions
1: and um
0: yeah, it's a terrific yeah. book because I think, as a you know, Westerner who's paying attention, my general take in it has always been that's not fair you know these it's not fair to do that to girls, but you kind of took it all through it to the logical endpoint of a universe where a bunch of people can't get married, can't continue. I didn't realize, you know, you always see these just gruesome headlines about um, rape in India. I don't know how else to say that. And then, you know, I didn't kind of connect the dots between gender selection and that until your book. Yeah, many people Yeah, many people would
1: say there is a, a definite connection because you have now this shortage of women as a result of sex selection in, in Asia. And... um You know, the result is that people are buying brides, they're trafficking in women, um, they're, you know, buying sex work and so forth. Um, But I did actually go back to the United States and go to these kind of high-tech clinics where uh, unscrupulous doctors are offering Americans the chance to choose the sex of their baby
0: oh yeah but, I often wondered what is going on behind closed doors I mean I'm sure there's all kinds of yeah and this
1: was, and this is not for you know there are a lot of medical reasons that people would do that like if they have a sex-linked disease
0: and so forth but
1: you know this is people who just really want to really want a boy or really want a girl but you know these doctors are sort of oblivious to the global consequences of what they're
0: doing so you have established a career as someone who has, is very insightful about China. China being really just a, a male, you know a maelstrom of emotion in America at this point. You know people are worried about unfair competition, worried about industrial espionage. Uh, the week that your book comes out, everybody is worried about the coronavirus, and so you have a, a great sympathy for. Chinese people and Chinese culture, and I think that that has given you a kind of a, a more nuanced and unique perspective. I mean, I think people would be surprised to know that the scientist and the spy, your new book, uh, thriller and page turner as it is, you're, it's not a, it's not like Chinese people bad.
1: Oh, definitely not. I mean, as the the coronavirus is a really good example of how. There is still a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in the United States. Um, you know, I'm having reported on the Chinese government and like had to parse Chinese government announcements for years. I'm no fan of the government. Um, you know, I think what hap- what's happening uh, in northwestern China, where over a million people are detained in camps. Um, these are primarily members of a Muslim Uyghur minority. I think that's absolutely horrible. Um, but in my book, I wanted to look at how this focus on China and our rising tensions between the two countries is affecting average people, both in China and in America. So, you know, there are a lot of... I. I kind of crisscrossed the Midwest tracing retracing the steps of Robert Moe and talking to American farmers as well and looking at how they are impacted by um these tensions between the two countries.
0: Oh, it's just it's just fascinating. All right. So I, I just think this is terrific. You I know there's an excerpt of this coming out in Vanity Fair. Is that out? Correct? It's out yeah. it's out. Oh yeah. Everybody you can go to vanityfair.com and check out the um Check out the excerpt of the book. It's just really terrific. I can't recommend it enough. I wrote about Mara for Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine. That piece is is out and about in the world. Um, uh, a Northfield girl with gumption. You have some readings coming up. You've got uh, you've got this one Tuesday night at Majors and Quinn in Uptown Minneapolis. Uh, I will be there. Celebrating you because I love this book so much. And then yeah, you, you will be reading in Northfield.
1: I'm going to read in Northfield on February 29th. It's a Saturday at 3 p.m. Um, at Content Books. And I'm hoping to do a few others in the in the Twin Cities as well.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. if anybody is kind of thinking, oh, I would like to get Mara Vistendal out to Hopkins or something, you can you can find her Full on MaraVistendahl.com. You can find a link from my Facebook page, Dara.gromdahl. Oh, I just realized we got two dolls on the radio here. This is it. I No. Know. I know. <laughs> oh, very funny. Um, all right. So Minnesotan. It's very Minnesotan. The uh, all the, the transplanted all the transplanted Norwegian. Um <laughs> all right. So congratulations on this book. And can I I've, I've got to ask if there's been movie interest. It is such a fascinating, just gripping
1: tale. So my agent's shopping it around um, in Hollywood now. There is I, I should say that there is one character in the book. This book is told from these multiple perspectives um, you know, from the perspective of Robert Moe, for one, the guy who was found in the field, uh, from the perspective of the FBI agent who tailed him for two years. Um, this is his name is Mark Betton, and he's a he's a like, good old Nebraska boy, and and then there's this third character who is this farmer from Illinois, who had been kind of a useful stooge in this Chinese operation. He was hired to be a consultant for the Beijing company, and you know, had but with little awareness of what they were had planned, and then. Several months into his work for them, the FBI knocks on his doorstep and he becomes this very reluctant informant for the FBI. So this guy, Kevin, is a is a third character in the book. That'll Kevin, be William
0: Macy, I'm sure that's, that, that's who that'll be. Kevin really wants Tom Hanks to play Oh, us. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Of course, we all want Tom Hanks to play <laughs> us. That's the, except me, and too short, yeah. but... <laughs> I really, I can't recommend this enough. It's called The Scientist and the Spy. You can come get a signed copy Tuesday night at Majors and Quinn, and but also I just recommend it because you got to drive sometimes from Mankato to New Prague, and this just adds a whole new layer. You're like, oh, I'm in the Fort Knox. I didn't know that I'm just in the in the vault here. It's true. Yeah, Midwestern intrigue. It's. That's perfect. All right. Well, congratulations. Thank you for coming in this morning. I know you got a busy, busy morning juggling kids, uh, just as we all do in the Midwest here. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, I had a bunch of, oh, I got a text uh, from somebody who was saying that Monsanto's former Olivia Minnesota research station was one of the world's best at developing new corn hybrids with hundreds of of patents. Yeah, I bet there's a bunch of corn scientists who are listening to us right now who are like, oh, the stories I could tell, but I'm uh, legally prevented from telling.
1: Them. I did talk to a number of uh, seed scientists in the in the process of doing the book. And in fact, Kevin, Kevin, in addition to being a farmer, is a seed breeder, uh, so he, he helped a lot with with the research side, as well as just like relating his story and his play-by-play of uh, it's very comical um, tale of the the day when the FBI showed up on his doorstep.
0: Yeah, you're just corn farmer. All of a sudden you got the FBI to tangle with. It's a, <laughs> it's a story. All right, the scientist and the spy, Mara Bastindal. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We've got, uh, oh, we've got a, a whole bunch of situations. I've got Klecko. Now all of a sudden... I'm, St. Paul's most famous bread baker is turning into one of Minnesota's most successful poets, and he's in the house, and we will talk to him when we come back. Dara here. All right, we got a fun, rocking show today. It's just so broad. We're covering all that. (laughs) I can't remember when Klecko and I first met. Klecko is a legend of St. Paul baking. He ran St. Agnes for years. St. Agnes... Got kind of, kind of, sort of shut down in a dramatic situation about which no one's allowed to talk about with ice until today, I guess. And he wrote this book called Hitman Baker Casket Maker. It's poetry, Klecko, your big old poet, you. And now I hear it's a bestseller. And Klecko is here to talk about. He's going to be at the Charlie Awards tomorrow, and all the things. Klecko, welcome.
2: Well, thanks for having me, and I bring you glad tidings from the capital city. And uh, yes, tomorrow, just across the street from here, pretty close, I'll be at the Pant- uh, Pantages Theater uh, for the Charlie Awards. If you're not familiar with that, it's the culinary equivalent to the Oscars, and uh, Klecko will be on board as entertainment, doing two different sets, much like Saturday Night Live. Um, you know, it's gonna. Are you
0: playing music?
2: No I'm I'm reading from my book but uh um you know I'm a performance artist at uh, heart and I think a lot of the uh, thrilling uh uh, component to this will be what will Klecko wear. I mean, I can't confer <laughs> uh, or deny that Vegas might have a betting line at uh, set one and set two. But no, I, the Charlie Awards is for all the people.
0: Sequins? You got sequins, you get feathers. What are we
2: looking at here? No, I, I, I'm not at liberty to discuss that. But but the Charlie Awards <laughs> is great because for anyone who's ever worked hospitality, uh, it's it's wonderful to see people in this very difficult industry get honored and have appreci- uh, appreciation showed towards them. You know, I, I really highly, highly recommend coming down and seeing it. It's it's a quick show. There's a little after party at seven Steakhouse. So oh, fun. Yeah, but but you know primarily, you know, the beautiful people. The beautiful people come on. Such out. as yourself. Well, All of right. Course, so the right.
0: bakers and stuff. All right. So uh tell me about were you a poet this whole time? Um
2: yes. Um I've been doing poetry for quite a few years, and, uh, you know, it's part of running a oven, closing ovens for um, times. But, you know, I've been writing business columns, things like this, uh, books, cookbooks, all kinds of things. But poetry to me is uh, uh, probably my favorite way to, uh, you know, express the things that are going on. I think you can have more impact with less words than you can with more.
0: So if I had been in the St. Agnes Bakery and I would see you at, you know, closing time, which is, you know, nine in the morning, uh, would you would you have been kind of scribbling in a little? Oh, co- constantly, really?
2: constantly, yeah. I, I mean, I have shoeboxes filled with uh, different thoughts, ideas, because, you know, as they say, a poem is never completely finished. But, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it. I've been very fortunate to uh, uh, be uh, under the mentorship of some of the best poets, uh, I helped Carol Connolly, the Poet Laureate of St. Paul, uh, work on uh, her uh, reading series at the University Club where I got to introduce everyone from, uh, you know, Robert Bly to state laureates to, you know, all the way down the line. So it's it's been a wonderful opportunity for me.
0: I love a baker poet. All right, we're going to take a little break here and have some weather and ads and stuff. We're going to come back with Cleco, the, the most famous Poet Baker of the State, I'm going to say. I can't think of another one, so uh, more Klecko when we come back. All right, Dara here. I am back with Klecko, the legendary baker of St. Paul. He's going to be leading some special entertainment tomorrow at the Industry Charlie Awards, and he has this new book, Hitman Baker, Casket Maker, And he is going to read us a poem. This will be the first in the history of the, I believe, eight years now of Off the Menu, our first poem. Klecko, take it away.
2: And once again, thanks. Uh, If you're looking for Hitman Baker, casket maker, Paris Morning Publications, or go to Amazon. Uh, The uh, poem I'm going to read is called Lunch with Oso. It's kind of like if this was a record, this would be the hit single, counting down three, two, one. Every day... For 21 years, I ate lunch with Oso, the morning bread mixer, in the employee break room, where we combined our food onto a single plate. On the final day of production, after setting out our meal, neither one of us ate. We weren't hungry. Neither one of us could sleep. We were past tired. It had been a 90-hour work week. So we just sat together quietly. I didn't know what to say. So I asked, You gonna be okay? He nodded yes before explaining, The biggest mistake I made was I got too comfortable. As a Mexican... I should have known better. Thank you.
0: Oh, devastating. So is this the time that this story can be told? So St. Agnes Bakery was a heritage famous much beloved bakery on West 7th Street in St. Paul and uh ICE basically came in and shut you down.
2: Well, yeah, it it was a tacit it was a tacit shutdown uh to be sure. I mean, basically we had the contracts for the Super Bowl and uh and they, this was
0: right before the Super uh, This was, was
2: right before. And so we they gave us a 10-day a period to shut down. In the past, you can negotiate with ICE, but under the current administration, not so much. And uh, so it was a very difficult time because um, I, as CEO, I wasn't in a position where I could really discuss this because if uh, I had to tell my uh, accounts that uh, service was going to be suspended, look for new purveyors, but if I would have said... That I was shutting the doors uh, for good. The nice can move to the front of the line, and everyone knows who works hospitality. Pay the employees first, the purveyors second. So you know you want to make sure you get the money into the hands of those people before fines are levied, and they were, and uh, and they weren't. Uh, they weren't small.
0: Really? Okay. So so you're able to talk about the last days of St. Agnes and how. Um, I shut everything down. I know that you know I talked to you at the time and you were just trying to pay everybody. That was it. And you said, you know, we right. can not talk.
2: Right. And 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 yeah, and then so the book hitman baker casket maker it, you know deals not only with this shutdown, but you know a lot of uh the lesson that I learned and I'm continuing to learn as I uh uh advocate for my crew of 23 uh that uh had dirty i9s is uh um so much of St. Paul turned its back. They turned their back on these people, people that we have baked for for decades. People who we built traditions for. People, these people uh, baked nights and weekends for. Uh, people turned their backs on them, and 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 nobody asked or cared. And and you know we, uh, you know we're trying to deal with certain agencies, but these people were left hanging. After uh, you know St. Paul is a sanctuary city, so if you're going to be a sanctuary city. You know, you have to offer some kind of security, but I would, you know, really quick like to not get political, but say I'm a big fan of Melvin Carter. I think for the first time in a long time, we have a mayor that's in the capital city that actually is trying to do work. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, I mean, people are always going to dig at you for something, but uh, Mayor Melvin Carter goes to every corner of our city and is working in hospitality. I can tell you he's in Midway, he's in East Side, he's on West Side. So he's the first mayor that doesn't just hang out downtown. So I do have hope, and that's why I'm going to continue uh, speaking and talking about this topic. Uh, you know, I'm even taking it back to D.C. in April for National Poetry Month and uh, just continue re- representing my crew.
0: All right. Well, if people want to find out more about what really happened, it's uh... – it's being is conveyed through poetry. Hitman, baker, casket maker. Um, I was surprised. We were talking in the green room, and you were saying that you feel like a lot of people in St. Paul are kind of living high in the hog on the labor of people from Mexico and Central America, and it's time to start grappling with that.
2: Well, I do, and I do, and i have not. I've made some enemies. Yeah, I like to point out primarily white people of St. Paul. Uh, You know, because I know a lot of uh, African-Americans, Hmongs, uh, different people like that, uh, uh, even the queer community understands what it is to to be minority, to be singled out. But, you know, there's so many uh, people in my demographic that they just really don't know when that person who is making the bed in their hotel or that person who's handing them a Big Mac uh, is living in abject fear that these people are going – home every night because we are living in a sis, uh, city where there's a system set up that says, we'll let you stay here. But, you know, they can never get past a certain point. Uh, and they're always under the threat of fear. And and it's just, it's really discouraging. And, and so, you know, so many people think they're doing something nice by hitting like on Facebook. But, you know, that does very little. You have to get out there and you have to speak. You have to get out there and you have to talk to your neighbors. You know, I mean, there's only so much that we can do, but this is, I mean, these people are indentured servants at best. So, I mean, I'm really, really hopeful, um, that people will, you know, once again, remember the city of St. Paul is inviting people here through tacit agreements, uh, to come on up because we are a sanctuary city and they're going to keep coming. So uh, I just hope that you'll be nice.
0: All right. Uh, being nice is hard. It's always like easy to tell other people to be nice. It's hard to do the work, as it were. Um, so if you want to see Klecko, he is at the Charlie Awards tomorrow. And Klecko, if people want to get your book. How do you? How do they get that?
2: Well, once again. Uh Best way, um, support my publisher, Julie Fitzinger, at Paris Morning Publications. Go uh, to their website. But if not, you can go to The Beast. Go to Amazon. They'll sell you a book. Or you can go to independent bookstores. My favorite uh, bookstore in the state of Minnesota would be Subtext Books St. Paul.
0: Oh, Subtext in St. Paul. That's a great one. Yeah, go there. Get a real copy. See some real people. Uh, Klecko, thank you so much for coming in today. I'm going to follow up with you and see if I can get some more details about all the, all the things you're up to. Uh, We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back with Ronnie Cummins. He has a new book, Grassroots Rising. It's about how um, we can prevent climate collapse, which is a thing that needs to get done because he's going to be at a local bookstore, too. It's local bookstore day here (laughs) and off the menu. All right, Cleco, thanks for coming in. Tara here. All right. So Grassroots Rising is a call to action on climate, farming, food, and a Green New Deal. Ronnie Cummins has devoted his life to trying to get us on the right path. We don't ever seem to get there. But, Ronnie Cummins, thank you for coming on the show today. First, let's get a little bit, who are you? What you been up to?
3: Uh, Well, I've been an activist since the 1960s, and I moved to uh, Minnesota uh, in the early 80s. And I helped found an organization called Organic Consumers Association, which is a large network of organic consumers, 2 million organic consumers across the US. And I've written books on uh, genetically engineered food and other topics. And my latest book is on the climate crisis and how our food and farming and the way we use land uh, practices are a major part of solving this crisis. And a whole lot of other problems that we have in society as well.
0: So you have been part of this, the whole, you know, I think a lot of people think of that organics were always there, but organics only started in the late 90s. And so you've, you've just been there since the, since the day one.
3: Yes. Uh, from our office in uh, northern Minnesota and our staff in the Twin Cities, we helped lead a campaign in 1998. Uh, that stopped the government from degrading organic standards because they were saying that genetically engineered food and sewage sludge and nuclear radiation would be okay. And uh, we've grown and expanded our efforts from that time, not only across the U.S., but into Mexico and internationally.
0: All right. So I do remember that nuclear waste situation. They wanted to irradiate Food And it was so it was so crazy. Uh, The idea was that you could kill pathogens through nuclear waste. And then uh, but it was just like if you only have one little cell that's bad left, it could just grow back to the original population. It was just the bonkers thing. And so thank you for (laughs) protecting us from that. Um, You know, I think a lot of us are feeling quite hopeless at this point about climate change, because, you know, anytime you go to do something a whole bunch of misinformation rushes into the space to say, like, no. The only thing we can do is eat. You know, uh, uh, <sighs> you know, we could just eat toxic patties, and that's the the solution to everything. So, give me some. Walk me through. What are some some things that can be done?
3: Well, most people understand that converting to renewable energy, solar and wind, and implementing uh, radical energy conservation, reducing the amount of fossil fuels that we use are a solution to the climate crisis. Uh, The reason, though, that most people are pessimistic that we can uh, do what world scientists tell us we should do and get to zero emissions within 10 short years is that they don't understand that That our food system and our system of agriculture and deforestation, the the way we treat the land, are a major part of this. That I make the argument in Grassroots Rising, which is a roadmap for how we can get to carbon neutrality and beyond in just 10 years. Look, we're going to eliminate about 50% of our current emissions in 10 years because... um, Renewable energy is growing very rapidly, uh, and energy conservation is more and more popular. Yes, yeah, so I think that people, pe- the people we,
0: should drive around question. and kind of look, because I think if you, you, know, you go down to the southwest corner of the state, so many windmills, you know, maybe people don't realize that they're there yet, or, or solar is just cheaper and cheaper and growing and growing.
3: Yes, I think a case can definitely be made that... One of the reasons we're going to reduce emissions by 50 percent is because that uh, it's going to be cheaper to own an electric car. Uh, It's cheaper to have well-insulated buildings. Uh, And the investors are pulling out of uh, fossil fuel investments right now pretty rapidly, not just because it's the right thing to do in terms of stabilizing the climate, because they can make more money from alternative energy than they can from coal or petroleum uh, uh, technologies. Uh, But what people don't understand is that we can suck down or draw down uh, the remaining emissions that we'll still have in 10 years uh, if we will just change our farming practices and our land use practices uh, to uh, organic and regenerative practices. In other words, the, the the carbon that we used to have in the soil and the trees and the grasslands, uh, a lot of that's now up in the atmosphere and the oceans. And if we're going to reverse global warming and not just slow it down, uh, we're going to have to get that carbon back to where it once was and where it'll do a bunch of good. And these aren't this is not rocket science. This is what. Uh, Farmers and ranchers traditionally did. Uh, we preserved wetlands. You know, we didn't chop down every tree in sight. Uh, we didn't, you know, cage up billions of animals in confinement uh, that should have been out eating grass and grazing. Uh, we didn't use all these chemicals, pesticides, and synthetic fertilizers that actually destroy the soil's ability to suck down that CO2 from the atmosphere through photosynthesis and put a large amount of it back into the soil. So we easily can reach zero net emissions by 2030, even though a lot of us in 10 years are still not going to be driving uh, electric cars yet, even though they'll be cheaper to operate. A lot of us are not going to be living in zero emission Uh, apartment buildings and houses yet, Um, but we can reach the global goal of uh, zero emissions by 2030 if we'll combine uh, what's called regenerative food farming and land use with alternative energy. And that's what the Green New Deal uh, that's being discussed so much. See that—that's uh, a thing
0: about. that I've been a bit confused about, and I really want to get your perspective on this because the Green New Deal to me is just so many things. I'm quite so. Explain to me how food production, farm production, in the Green New Deal, how you see that making sense.
3: Well, if you look at if you look more closely at a plan for the Green New Deal, such as the one. Uh, put out there by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, for example, you'll see that part of what they're talking about is not just reducing emissions, but sucking down the remaining emissions. Uh, in Sanders' plan, uh, for example, there's you know 840 billion dollars over 10 years to help farmers and ranchers make this transition.
0: And so, what yeah, are right- we talking about? We're talking about it would be a grass-fed. Uh, cattle would be you know, walking around under windmills? Is that what we're talking about?
3: Well, I was just in Iowa for the uh, caucuses, and one of the things I noticed in Iowa is you can drive across the whole state uh, and you don't see any animals anymore. I mean, it wasn't like this before. Uh, the other thing that you notice, whether you're talking about Iowa or southern Minnesota, is that all the rivers look pretty darn dirty. Uh, and in the summertime, you wouldn't think about swimming in these lakes or rivers. Uh, the way things used to look 150 years ago uh, in this part of the world uh, was it was grassland primarily. There were still a lot of trees out there. The rivers ran clean, and the animals, the herbivores who are meant to eat grass, were outside eating grass. Now, in the winter, of course, you're using the hay that grew in the summer months, but on most days, uh, animals can still be out there. I know I drove through an area of Iowa uh, where I get my organic milk in the in the co-op here in Minneapolis, and the cows were outside. They were eating rolls of of hay that were rolled out there, and so we've got to stop producing. Corn and soybeans on the scale we're producing them in the way that we're producing them. I mean, most corn and soybeans don't even go into human food, they go into ethanol or they go into the food uh, in these factory farms for the animals that should be eating grass. So we're going to have to convert back to the kind of traditional organic farming and ranching systems that we had. you know 50 60 years ago and we'll end up with food that's healthier you know animals that are more humanely treated we'll end up with rural communities that are populated again by people and that have schools and businesses uh, and we will uh, also be reversing climate change so this, this is what is I the, want, because
0: that's also where we're going to get our bumblebees and our uh, birds back. I mean, there's just... Uh, and clean water. The amount of nitrate pollution in rural America right now is terrifying.
3: Yes, and if you have a regenerated landscape where you have uh, trees out there in the, in the environment, not just plowed uh, prairie, um, you end up with cleaner water, healthy soil. Filters the water. It also, when it rains, uh, if what you have is an industrial farming landscape, uh, it's like a tabletop. The rain hits the tabletop and it flows off. I mean, they actually use dry uh, uh, drain tiles to speed this water off the fields in an industrial, you know, agriculture setting. If it's fertile soil, alive with microorganisms, earthworms and stuff, what happens is when the rain falls, a considerable amount of it infiltrates into the soil. And it's like a, you know, it's like a cistern below the soil.
0: Oh, Ronnie, I I have so sorry. I'm, we're going to have to wrap this up. So I think that everybody needs to read your book. So Grassroots Rising, I have been, you know, I've been covering this forever, and I really have not quite understood how we're going to get from where we are to where we need to be. But Grassroots Rising, you, you lay out a persuasive case, and I, I thank you for that. That's uh, Ronnie Cummins, Grassroots Rising. Uh, we will be back here next week on Off the Menu.